HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today, my guest is a woman who helps one of the food world's most important restaurants stay, restaurant groups, that is, stay green. Everything from paper towels to composting falls under her watchful eye. We're going to get the inside scoop in a moment. But first, my week in food. I went to Baltimore this weekend for no reason other than the fact that Alison Robicelli was on my show here, speaking broadly, and was so excited about Baltimore, I had to go. So we made a plan to meet up, and she was going to show me her city. It turned out to be fantastic timing because it was the beginning of crab season. I wanted crab on everything. And the first place she took me, which was Stuggies, is a hot dog place. And I was thinking, crab and hot dog? I mean, this is an appalling idea. But when you get there and you see that it's a really big all-beef hot dog and the crab is actually folded into mac and cheese and then it's put on top like a big bouffant on a little head, You're, you just think, wow, this is incredible. And you eat with gusto. So Stuggies, crabby delicious. Then for dinner, I went to Woodbury Kitchen. Spike Jerdy's restaurant, which is dedicated to the food of the Mid-Atlantic States. The sky is all local, all the time. And there I had this thing called the Tillman Island Crab Pot. I mean, I would like to bathe in that pot. It was beautiful, delicate crab in this lava flow of cork cheese and this fiery pepper and they give you toast to eat it with, but me, I actually just went for the spoon. The next morning, I went and had breakfast at the Pendry Hotel, which has recently opened, 
at the restaurant called Rec Pier, where Andrew Carmelini is the chef. And I had an Eggs Benedict with a gigantic crab cake and Old Bay Hollandaise. I have Andrew on the phone to tell us about crab and this new hotel adventure. Hey, Andrew. How you doing, Dana? I'm great. I'm so excited. I was so surprised to see you at Rec Pier. And then when I realized you'd just opened and you'd been there for 20 days straight working on that menu, uh, I understood why. <laughs> Well, you know, it's yeah, you know, it's in a beautiful hotel um, that they did in um, in um, Fells Point, which is like the kind of old historic neighborhood. And we are doing two things in Baltimore because we think it's a super cool place. And the hotel is one of them, and it's really just it's on this old wreck pier, which is um, this refurbished pier that was turned into a hotel. Most of the rooms are on the water, and there's a beautiful atrium. And then our restaurant kind of sits in front, right on Dame Street, which is like the happening. Um, uh, place right there in uh, Fells Point. Well, I love staying in that hotel, and indeed, I looked out on the the waterfront. the The pool situation that also looks out at the the river seemed very special. It was like Miami Beach, uh, <laughs> except in Baltimore, which yeah. is quite unexpected. And yeah, in Baltimore, people, you know, is really. I mean, they're they're coming out in droves to check out um, the hotel, but especially when they get to the pool, they're like, "Wait a second, where is this? This wasn't <laughs> like this is the harbor front in 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 Baltimore, and it's really just." Uh, you know, it's a, I hear from a lot of you know, locals that are just like seeing it in a different way. They're like seeing the waterfront in a different way and engaging with the water in a different way, uh, which is really cool. And I think when you uh, work on your whiskey project, people will also be experiencing that water in a different way. Do you want to talk, yeah, tell us about that? So we're doing, um, so we're doing the hotel that you know, opened up this spring, and then uh, we're also doing um, this. Uh, you know, Maryland has a long history of rye whiskey production. And uh, they kind of went away a little bit um, after um, Prohibition. And there's a couple, um, you know, distilleries that are bringing it back. And one is called Sagamore Rye. And they just built a new beautiful, beautiful distillery in um, kind of an industrial area on the water called Port Covington. And it's uh, it's just stunning uh, 40-foot hand-hammered um, distillery towers out of brass. And they're really, like, it's Really, really, it's an incredible building, and, you know, they've been making this product for five years, so now they're starting to get some age a little bit. And next to that is going to be a restaurant that we're going to open up in September. It's going to be very American kind of experience and also in a beautiful location right on the water. And you'll be able to take a water taxi from the hotel uh, around the harbor front and kind of around uh, Fort McHenry, uh, which is where the Star Spangled Banner was written, and you'll be able to go around there and uh, to the Whiskey Project um, and have some whiskey, try some whiskeys, eat at my restaurant, and then take a boat back to the hotel. So to me, this like amazing kind of like way to engage with the water and engage with kind of like the, the history of Maryland in a really cool way, in a cool food way. Actually, I, I love the idea of a water taxi. You can get drunk and just take a water taxi back. Oh, yeah. No, it's... uh <laughs> I mean, or... that's going to happen. <laughs> right, that's never going to happen. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the menu at Rec Pier. The Eggs Benedict that I had was straightforward, delicious. That crab cake was all... It felt like, to me, it was all crab. Is that sort of symbolic of the food that you're going to be doing there? I know it's a, a steakhouse concept. Yeah, you know, the, the, it's a very masculine kind of, like, uh, design. It's, the rooms have a kind of handsomeness to it, um, which is, 
we tried to match kind of like the cuisine we were doing a little bit to the design of the building because it does have this historical feel. Um, so it's it's uh, steak and Italian. So we, we called it Rec Pier Chop House. The the pier used to be called Rec Pier as in recreation pier because for 20 years it was um, um, you know there were like basketball courts in it and you could go um, just kind of relax um, you know on the water. And uh, you know the menu is um, yeah really good, well sourced. Um, Steaks, some from Virginia, which really surprised us because wow. we're finding some very good grass-fed beef in Virginia that um, has good husbandry behind it, um, which is raised really well and tastes really good. Sounds great. We're serving that there. And then um, lots of Carmelini Italian classics. <laughs> I love you can find Carmelini in so many places right now. <laughs> you, you can Manhattan, Brooklyn, Baltimore, and soon to be... Detroit. Oh yeah, we're going to do yeah, we're going to, um, probably end of 18 uh, 19 we're going to we're going to open up in Detroit, which is also a similar story to Baltimore in, in a way that we're going to have um, we have a very strong local partner there, Shinola, um, the company that makes watches and leather goods, and uh, we're going to do a hotel together, Shinola Hotel. That's fantastic, Andrew. I think you should actually, you know, just take over the country state by state because I love your food <laughs> so much. Thanks so much for coming on and uh, see you soon. Yeah, see you soon. Thanks, Anna. Every week I read the food news wrap-up that Amanda Clute does at Eater. If you don't get this newsletter, you should because it saves me a lot of time. I get to know all of the important news of the day or the week, not the day. And it's informative, it's fun, and Amanda doesn't shy away from controversy, which is something else that I really like. This week, she took on the question of stagiaires, which are essentially free cooking interns. Eater ran a piece by someone named Corey Mintz on this subject, and so she commented upon it. The statistic that stunned me was that at Noma, there were something like 25 cooks and 30 stagiaires. Amanda, are you there? Yep. Uh, hi. Hi, how are you know. doing? I'm so happy to have you on to say, you know, what do you think of this stagiaire situation? Is it, you know, good for the world, bad for the world? Where do you stand? Sure. Well, I mean, Corey's piece really focused on the free labor aspect and how it gives these restaurants a competitive advantage. Um, I'm not so focused on that. Like, I think that that could be true, but sometimes having these free cooks is often a lot of trouble and they <laughs> take a lot of training. I, I know from having interns myself. Um, my bigger issue with the unpaid internships at restaurants and elsewhere is that it exacerbates problems of diversity and gender balance at the top. So if you can only bring on board at the internship level people who can afford to work for free, you're going to be pulling from communities of mainly affluent and mainly white cooks. And I think if you're trying to fix the diversity problems within the restaurant industry, you need to focus on paying the labor at the very bottom. And is there an argument that says... uh, you know, the restaurants would suffer if they didn't have this labor and we wouldn't have this these great high-end restaurants because running a sure. restaurant is so yeah. expensive. And what do you say to yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's expensive to pay people, but I also think it's the right thing to do. And if the, if the market doesn't support that, then that's a, something we need to think more about. Like, if your business plan doesn't support paying your workers, there's a problem there. So I think just saying like, oh, well, we can't afford to pay 
cooks, I don't think that's that's a good enough answer. And the same, it, it equates to media too. Like we at Eater, we for years had unpaid internships, and I think it did lead to a pipeline for us that was a mostly white and mostly affluent group of people. Right. Well, I think it's a it's a big topic because, as you say, it's not just in restaurants. Um, it is in media and elsewhere, unpaid interns. And also, I think it does um, bring up the point of the restaurant's bottom line and what a difficult, difficult business this is and all the innovative and uh, potentially challenging ways in which restaurants try to um, compensate and keep their costs down and the food fantastic. If you're listening and you have a strong point of view, or any point of view at all, about <laughs> stagiaires, free interns, feel free to uh, send me an email at danacowan1 at gmail.com or reach out to Amanda at Eater. I'm sure she'd love to hear from you, too. Amanda, do you want to? I would, yeah. It's Amanda at Eater.com. That's great. Amanda, thanks so much for coming on, and I'll talk okay. to you soon. Thank you for having me. Bye, Dana. Bye. So we're going to take a short break here, and when we come back, we're going to hear from Elizabeth Metz, Meltz, the woman who keeps red-headed Mario Batali's restaurant group green. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. But what better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and I am thrilled to have Elizabeth Meltz with me today. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. So you're the Director of Health, Safety, and the Environment for the Batali and Bastianich Hospitality Group. Um, that restaurant group is run by Mari Batali and Joe Bastianich, two megastars. And that title sounds a lot like three presidential cabinet posts all in one. That sounds like an enormous amount of work. I can't wait to hear more about it now. And also when we get to spend time together at FAB in Charleston. Super exciting. Yeah, that's going to be June 11th to 13th in Charleston, South Carolina. It's 48 hours of educational and inspirational workshops created by women, for women in the hospitality industry. So what panel are you doing? I'm doing uh, The Bottom Line and another one that I can't remember right now. But but The Bottom Line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about 
how you came up with this job. Because as in so many interesting jobs, it's something that you pretty much created along the way. It's not the job you started with and most likely won't be the job that you end with. I don't know about that. But, <laughs> um, um, no, interesting because echoing Amanda's sentiment, I started as a free intern at a restaurant here no kidding. in New York City. Yes, and What restaurant was that? At Oriole. Oh, love Oriole. Yeah, also thematic because my first chef was a guy named Dante who worked very closely with Andrew Carmelini. So, oh my goodness. Yes, this is like a <laughs> perfect show. Um, but I agree. What did you do as a free intern? I picked a lot of time leaves. Uh-huh. I pulled yellow arugula out of a, you know, a bin of green arugula. <laughs> um, did you feel one of the issues that comes up about the interns is whether that's valuable work? You know what? It is valuable to the restaurant because you have the time leaves. Um, It is valuable, and this is the point I was going to make, to the human being who learns how to get these things done and how to work their way up. Mm -hmm. However, you know, if they start paying these interns, it's not like it's going to be $100 an hour. We're still talking minimum, minimum wage. And I think you can learn the same lesson working for minimum wage that you can working for free. You know, you're still picking time leaves. It's still grueling work, and it's still not very well paid. Right. Uh, I've heard the argument that those jobs, the time picking and yellow leaf picking mm-hmm. ones, are available for pay. You know what I mean? Right. Like restaurants do hire for that. Yes. So if you need a job in the restaurant world, that is where you're going to start, and it's available. Yes. Yeah. So oh, but you, so, so I started, started there. Yes, <laughs> I did. I started at Oriole. Then I spent. Um, you know, when I went to culinary school, I said I definitely don't want to be a chef. I don't want to own my own restaurant. I don't. I just want to sort of get dip my toe in the water and then maybe become a caterer or become a journalist. I didn't know. And then I started Oriole, and two years later, I was still there. I just fell in love with cooking. Um, then I went to Italy. I lived in Italy for a little while. I cooked there. I took another, like, slow food program. Uh, I came back. I was tired of cooking, so I went and I worked for a magazine. I worked for a magazine for a year. I missed cooking and went back to cooking. <laughs> Long story short, I eventually ended up at Del Posto about nine months after they opened as a cook. And then from there, um, Chef Mark Ladner, who I really feel like I owe I'm very indebted to, and I created this kitchen manager position um, that included a little bit of HR, included a little bit of finance, front of the house, uh, translation, PR, marketing, and... Let's go back to all that back and forth thing that you did. Is Did you feel that that helped you in some way, that you were in and out of a kitchen before you sort of started on a this yes. path? I mean, I feel the same way I feel about relationships, which is it's all the wrong one until it's the right one. And so you, <laughs> that's how you get there. Um, you know, you, you you think you love something and then you think you want to do something else and you miss the other thing and you sort of eventually get there. And now I've been with Mario 10 years and I love this job. Um, in fact, I wasn't only half kidding when you said it might not be the last job you do. It may very well be. I mean, <laughs> you really found something perfect for me and that's how you get there. So if uh, anyone's listening and they want great advice on how to find that perfect job, we're going to take calls um, later on in this show. The phone number to call is 718-497-2128. So you had done those jobs, and then it sounds like the job that you created was truly a little bit of everything. Yes. And 
no one was doing those jobs before you came to take them on? Well, I mean, I know this isn't a visual media, but I always like to tell <laughs> the story of how, you know, one of the sous chefs was both expediting, you know, working the line and doing payroll. And so a cook would wander up to him and say, I, I forgot to clock in this morning. And in the middle of the dinner rush, he'd pull a little piece of paper off the, off the receipt maker, you know, the ticket printer, and write, you know, Johnny, 7 p.m., and stuff <laughs> it in his pocket. And I started to look around, and I was like, you know, these guys should be focusing on being sous chefs. I can take the payroll from that sous chef. I can take the benefits from this sous chef. I can take the menu translation to the front of the house information away from that guy. And they can focus on what they're supposed to be doing. So the answer is people were doing them, just not as well as probably they should have been done. And were they open to having you do them? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Delighted to give up those details. Coming from the kitchen really helps. You're not just an interloper. You know, they're like, oh, you know how this works. You know how hard it is for people to remember to clock in. And so it it made the transition easier. And then how did you grow from that to take on things like, let's not use paper towels or... Whatever the more sustainable initiatives were. Um, the the food safety and sustainability stuff really just started to... It was that time also. Sustainability was just at the forefront of um, being, you know, a restaurant thing. Um, food safety, we hadn't quite switched to grades yet, but the health department is obviously always a big deal. Um, and those were not being specifically handled by somebody. And when it came to sustainability, what sort of did you immediately see that needed help or needed work? Um, I just, you know, when I came on board, Chef Ladner was already composting, which was probably the only restaurant in New York City that was having, you know, their compost commercially picked up. And I thought, what else are we missing? Hmm. Um, And so I started to look around at all the paper towels that we use. Um, You know, was there the energy efficient hand dryers were just coming out at the time. Your dishwasher uses a tremendous amount of uh, energy to heat the water. The, the spray valves that you use all day long that rinse the plates, where we just, you know, where were we um, wasting and could we do better? And I feel in many ways that this is a mission-driven job right. for you. And what is that personal mission that you bring with you right. to work every day? I, I always want to, when I get asked this question, I always want to say... Well, you know, I grew up on a farm or my parents were... (laughs) But the truth is, I just... I did grow up in a house where the answer to too many things was you do it because it's right. And at the time, when I was a kid, I was like, that's not a... I don't want to do it just because it's right. But it really was ingrained in me that you want to do the right thing. And um, the earth needs our help. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. And each and every one of us. And now you get to help for... Hundreds of people across. Right. How many restaurants now? I mean, if you include everybody and Italy and Lydia and Joe, the ones that they own individually, about 30. So, yes. But I don't do um, the Asia, the restaurants in Asia. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but it still sounds like quite a number yes. of restaurants. Did you have any guides along the way, either a human guide, like, oh, if I do it the way they do it, I will learn, or a book guide, right. or a... Um, Online source, or I feel like Chef Ladner was a guide to a certain extent. Uh, Mario himself was very open and responsive. Joe had some great ideas. You know, at one point we converted his truck to run on re- uh, vegetable oil, and it was a it was a huge project. I was terribly intimidated, but we got it done. Um, <laughs> what did that entail? 
um, at the time, there wasn't. It wasn't like you just went to a local mechanic and said, "Hey, I want to do this." Um, I found these guys in Virginia. And Joe was really committed to it, and they sent their like nineteen-year-old son up to drive his car back down to Virginia. I mean, oh if, my goodness! I don't think I even knew how crazy uh, the, that that it was that I did that. That I let someone drive Joe Bastianich's car down to Virginia, but they did. They outfitted it and <laughs> sent it back, and we got a little thing at Del Posto that would recycle the grease and he would literally come pull upside Del Posto and fill up his car. Yeah. And does that still happen today? I don't know if he still has the car. You know, he spends so much time in Italy, but yes. I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> he is really fueling his Vespa at this right. point. <laughs> so that's a different story. Don't give him any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I know you brought an inspirational passage and I'd love to hear what you brought okay. to read to us today. So um, I brought something that isn't going to seem like it fits, I guess, with, um, you know, what, what I do or, but it's, I think it speaks to who I am. Um, okay. It's a letter from my grandmother when I lived in Italy. It says, hi, sweet potato. I speak to mother most days and get all the news that does not replace speaking to you. However, I'm delighted that you are moving and will be with other young people. I was living at the time in an apartment with this old lady, and I was miserable. Oh, <laughs> How could you think the girl who invited you didn't like you? I also thought that this girl originally didn't like me. <laughs> you, she was on it, your grandma. <laughs> uh, you are lovable Liz, remember? No one can see you through grandma's eyes. No, nevertheless, you are a charmer. Mother is after me about celebrating my 85th birthday. Really, honey, a big party without grandpa holding my hand is not a celebration to me. So long as my family, you, Daniel, mom, and dad think of me, I'm content to have dinner together, period. As the years go on, it seems I miss my life's companion more. My heart's wish is for you, my sweet. It, my heart's wish for you, my sweet, is to find a life's companion to share your dreams and make you happy as grandpa and I did. You are such a caring person, you deserve that happiness. Sugar plum. This is my favorite thing. Sweet potato sugar plum. Yeah. <laughs> All the food analogies. This is really right up front. I needed your young pair of legs this last weekend. I got new carpeting for my bedroom, painted and foolishly emptied out the chest of drawers, etc. Shoes, shoes, shoes all over the place. Every sofa and chair had clothing draped over it. Only today I put the last pieces away and now someone has to drape me upright. Can a person <laughs> be draped upright? I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Take care of my granddaughter. That's so sweet. sweet, right? And I can imagine why that speaks to you, but but why especially? Like, what does that say to you about your position in the world right. today? And you know, it's just—I mean, my parents have been married for fifty-one years. My grandparents were married for sixty-something years. Um, I have a great partner that I hope to be married to for that. Well, I can't be because we didn't get together till much later. Um, they're all the wrong one until they're the right one. Um, but it just has to do with taking care of each other. You know, strangers, your partner, your friends, your family. Um, there's just a sense of kindness, I think, that has been passed down to me. And, and that sense of kindness, actually, you... Um, take in your role and take care of the earth, right? And then take care of the, all the customers, right? We, I mean, we focus mostly on sustainability, but I also do workplace safety and food safety. So making sure staff is healthy, you know, simple things like training them how not to how to prevent slips and falls, how to use a ladder properly, um, dealing with the health department and compliance with the health department, keeping our guests safe. Um, so yes, it's a kindness that extends to all. And to do that with a big heart rather than a big sigh. Right. I, honestly, if it was me, there'd be a very big groan. Right. At, um, and, and some anxiety as well, you know, that it all wasn't going to turn out right and I'd be degraded to a B. Right. No, 
I think if you know, and Mario has said this a lot um, in the last couple of years. It's all compliance all the time. None of this like fire drill stuff or whatever. And I think that that really um, brings it to a level of of making it easier and less anxious and just doing it right. And also, it's important that you have the absolute total one hundred percent support of Mario's yes. because. Everybody will do anything that yes. Mario says. Yeah. I, I have to. I have to believe. Yes. I don't know. Um, so, can you tell me some of the innovations that you're most proud of in the kitchen or on the floor? Right. At the I think restaurants? I. I always feel like the simplest ones are the ones that I'm most proud of. Um, definitely. And with Earth Day coming up, it, uh, it makes sense to mention that we got rid of all of our plastic straws. That's great. It is. Um, the policy is you get a straw upon request. So we do have straws in house. Usually they're paper made of corn or metal. Um, so if you, I mean, if you see when people order a drink and they get a straw, I would say 50% at least just take it out and put it on the side. So you don't get one unless you ask for one. Granted, at a place like Del Posto, if we anticipate that you're going to need a straw, we're not going to wait for you to ask. Yes. But we have these beautiful <laughs> black paper straws. Um, that sounds very chic. It is. They're really beautiful. We um, actually have a fight at, at my house because my daughter insists on drinking with a straw. And I just, I can't bear it. Right. We, it's, you can get the metal but I, reusable ones. She doesn't like the feel of that, uh, but I do think I can. I should test out the paper. You've made yeah. a good point. But they have to be good quality paper because the bad ones are like, you're just, yeah. Okay. Um, I think the no bottled water policy, you know, now everybody has that, but when we first turned it over, at, you know, at Del Posto in 2007, it was very innovative. Um, it was a little risky. It also has um, financial ramifications because right. you're making the margin on bottled water is good. Huge, yeah. Yeah. Uh, have there been financial ramifications to the changes that you've made? I mean, the, it cost more to bring the Pellegrino or whatever it was in, in the door. So even though we charge less for the bottles now, it, the system costs us a lot less than it did to bring bottled water overseas to begin with. And so much better for the world. Yes. Um, other innovations? I mean... Again, the simplest ones are the best ones. Uh, we participate in Meatless Monday, so we offer a vegetarian entree um, every Monday. The idea being it's not just a salad that we've supersized. It's something we've thought about. Granted, at some place like Oto, it's going to be a pizza. Uh, it can be a pasta, but it could be eggplant parmesan or a cauliflower steak or something. And that is just a simple conversation with the guest about why you would eat vegetarian one day a week. I love that that fell into your realm because... In many cases, that would be in the chef's control or right. the owner, but it's great that it comes out of a really holistic vision. Yes, and Mario was engaged from the very beginning. I remember what he told me when he opened um, the different restaurants in Italy mm -hmm. how vegetable-focused they were. And it's not something he was trumpeting. It's just something he really believed in. And, of course, now we hear about vegetable butchers and, like, yes. yawn, yawn. But Mario was, like, way ahead of the curve with his... Um, I in can't Jennifer Rubel, vegetable yes. butcher. He often will say to me, yeah, let's do it, but let's not make a big deal about it. Let's just do it. And it's funny because in a way I feel like it's let's do it because it's right all over again. Let's do it not for the PR value, but let's just do it, you know? Um, so I really appreciate that. It would definitely make your job easier. Yeah. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to take calls. So if you have questions about uh, sustainability, uh, you have an expert on hand right here. Um, the phone number again is 718-497-2128. For people who want to bring this sensibility home, either for food safety, which I think is hugely important, uh, or for 
sustainability, composting. What type of advice do you have for them? Um, so it's interesting that you mentioned it could also be food safety because my number one is the expiration date issue we have in America, which is that, you know, they really are not a guarantee of safeness. They are a guarantee of the manufacturer's quality or best buy, essentially. Uh, it is not federally mandated outside of infant formula. Um, so people have a box of pasta that expired, you know, two months ago, and they think that they shouldn't eat it because it's unsafe. And that is a huge contributor to food waste. So my number one is trust your senses. If you have a yogurt that expired yesterday... Open it up, smell it. Now, it's interesting coming from me because I also do food safety, right? So I would not tell our restaurant staff to serve expired milk to our guests um, because we are serving all kinds of people who may have a, a compromised immune system. Or, um, But if it's in your own home, you know, use your judgment. And if it's the carrot, you know, everyone has that carrot in the back of the drawer that's like kind of limp and you're like, mm, <laughs> just peel it and throw it into a stock or you, it, it's, it's okay. I think that there's going to be a change in this arena in the next few years, and I think it's so important. So important. We eat a lot of expired food in my house. Giving it the sniff test, or like, really, how bad can this be? It was fermented. It's, I mean, using our intelligence as well as our senses. And the interesting thing is that salmonella and E. coli don't smell like anything. They don't taste like anything. So it's actually, you know, if the food is spoiled or has mold, it's actually an early warning sign, but it's a different type of spoilage mechanism. So you smelling it is not, whether it's unexpired or expired, is not going to tell you anything about whether it has salmonella. Right. Um, So that's my number one. Um, The other one, the other few would be refusing things like plastic bags, plastic straws. Um, And also, now that we've moved a lot towards reusable bags, Mm -hmm. I have a trunk full of reusable bags at home. So if I don't bring them to reuse them, then they just become disposable bags. Um, So I've actually wondered what to do with that because I have a collection of cute bags that I've gotten at, you know, a book fair or whatever. And I will not throw them away. Right. And now I have an entire cabinet of them. Well, they just become another disposable that, that, yeah, that you're holding on to. Someone recommended that I bring them to uh, like a Goodwill or a Salvation right. Army. I thought that was a good, a good thing to do since I refuse to give them up to the trash right. and I don't really want to have them. It's funny because um, I have two stepkids and I have a great relationship with their mom and we have to send stuff back and forth between the houses and sometimes the same reusable bag will come. It's like, <laughs> it's like a little unspoken, you know, like, no, you take it. No, I'll take it. Um, but you, there are uses for them, but you have to remember to use them. Right. That must be one reason you guys get along so well. Right. Like it's just completely in tune right. on the bag situation. Um, I would say as far as other sustainable or food safety things people could do at home, I think eating less meat is a big thing. And if you're going to eat meat, eat responsibly raised and sourced meat. Um, a new one I've come up with is potentially if you travel a lot to offset your carbon footprint with a carbon, um, you know, something like uh, carbontax.org, you can per- you set offset your personal footprint. Um, my husband travels a lot, so... I've been working on that with him. Mm-hmm. So those are some things that you can that are a little more creative rather than the usual like recycle, compost, things like that. Right. That sounds like a, a great thing to do. Yeah. And an action you can take. I love it. Today I got an email from my son's school and they're doing a food drive. And I don't have the extra right. cans, but now there's an option to you can actually just donate directly through a link the That's food great. you want to give. Oh nice. And so instead of like searching out the can of beans. Right. You can send 10 cans of beans. That's great. To someone in need who's hungry. Right. 
And who probably wants that, not your pumpkin that you had in <laughs> exactly. the... Yeah. That hasn't expired right. yet. <laughs> exactly. So do you, do you feel that it costs more money to be sustainable? Um, I think that sometimes up front, it's a big commitment. Um, but the outlay of cash, you know, I, ideally you'll have a return on your investment. So if you do a lighting retrofit, it might cost you a lot right away, but you'll get that money back in the energy savings. Um, there are certain things. Some of the straw, paper straws are generally more expensive than plastic mm-hmm. straws. Um, we balance that with the straws upon request. So hopefully we don't give out as many. Um, I think any change is going to cost you some money, but it's the direction the world is moving in. And I think if the more people who get on, the more cost effective it will be long term for everybody. Right. And then again, what is the cost to the earth? Right. Which is something that um, I don't know. I like to keep in mind. Yes, I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) We could send bags back and forth to our houses. It would be very good. Um, Okay, so I'm going to open the phone lines now and see if we have any callers. And oh, we got one. Yay. I feel like I went fishing and I had like a little worm on, and I've got a fish. Hello, is there someone on the phone? Hello. Hi. Who's hi? Who's this? This is Yasmin. Hi, Yasmin. Did you have a question for um, Elizabeth? Yes, I actually do. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Hi. Um, so I'm wondering how you educate your employees at all of the various. Uh, the Talibasi on its restaurants and, and properties so that they actually comply with your sustainability practices. That's a great I question. would imagine it's really hard to ensure that, you know, once you educate all the employees, once you leave at the end of the day, they actually continue on with those practices. Yes. That's a great question. Um, it is a struggle. I am currently a department of one, and so mm-hmm. getting to each restaurant um, all the time to reinforce that, especially when we have things like workplace safety and labor laws and things, other things that they have to remember and worry about that potentially can take priority. Um, but we do a lot of trainings. Um, we try to try to hit each restaurant and myself, I try to hit each restaurant annually. We do some email blasts and some, um, printed materials that we share with them. And then we really try to reinforce it with the chef and the GM and the managers to then like, like a train the trainer type thing. And then do you have any language issues? Uh, because some of the kitchen staff might not have English as a first language. We translate a lot of things into Spanish. Um, so that helps a lot. I have a translator who works, who I just write to, and she translates it for me, and it works out really well. That, um, that sounds great. Well, thank you for your great um, question. Question, yes. I mean, because, of, of course, it's true. You can set up all the great systems, and if people don't comply. Of course. Thank, thanks. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thank Bye. You. And I think there might be there might be one other caller in this experimental first call situation. Do we have someone on the line? Hi, Dana. Hi. Who's this? It's Randy Weinstein hey. from Fab. Oh, hey, Randy. Oh, you're good to call in. So can you can you tell us, Elizabeth? You're right. Sorry about that. Her panels. I just got back from vacation and my brain is a little mush. Although we had, we did have a conference call about one of the panels and I was on it even from St. Bart. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> I am impressed. I'm first of all, I'm extremely excited that the both of you had said yes to this inaugural event. So I'm going to start off asking 
both of you, what interested you in Fab and saying yes? And then I'll give you the part two would be what um, what are you hoping that attendees are able to take away from both of you? And if you want me to remind you of your topic, I'm happy to. <laughs> That's okay. Go, go ahead. I mean, for me, I just... The women are such a driving force in this industry and not to get political, but I think that, you know, in the current climate, we're also going to be the change. It's all going to come from us. And the idea that this was for women and by women. Um, I also think that there, the flip side can be that women can be competitive and not share. You know, one of the things I talk about with my friends is like, why do we not share how much money we make? You know, no one's going to go to your boss and say, she makes more money. You should take her down. They're going to say, hey, I've learned that other people make. And so sharing this information and empowering each other. And this just seems like an opportunity to just share your knowledge and your skills and help boost each other up. So I'm super excited. I'm excited to learn from all these different women who are in very different jobs in the food world. Um, speaking broadly, I try to go behind the scenes and expose jobs that uh, people might not know about that would be of interest and really understand how people got where they are. So I'm looking forward to connecting with and hearing these really uh, impassioned stories from people who have been so successful and uh, of course everything else Elizabeth said <laughs> <laughs> and Charleston doesn't make a bad uh, no like I've never been I'm doesn't. really excited no, I mean my, uh, my food list for Charleston is much longer than the days I have <laughs> <laughs> well, perfect. I am, again, thank you both, and um, and it was great listening to Elizabeth. Welcome back. And Dana, it was great seeing you a few weeks ago. Great. We're, we'll both see you very soon. Yes, I'm very excited. Thank exactly. you. Exactly. All right. Hey. Now, on the on the topic of women em- empowering right. each other, one of the ways we do that is supporting women and calling out people who are our mentors, people we admire, who would you nominate to the Food Hall of Dames? So this was easy. I nominated Naomi, Star- Naomi Starkman, um, the founder and editor-in-chief of Civil Eats. She is not only a dear friend, she is a mentor, and she really taught me what it means to be a mentor. Um, and what does that mean to you? I mean, it's not only sharing your successes and, and giving advice, it's also being vulnerable and sharing your failures and um, letting people see that you are human and that... Um, that failures create change and, and build you up as well. But so I would be remiss in mentioning Naomi without mentioning Carrie Truman, who is a journalist, uh, advocate, uh, food environmentalist, all of the good things. Um, she introduced us, and I feel like all roads lead back to Carrie. She actually introduced me to the Meatless Monday concept. And nobody knows her, but all roads lead back to her, um, and she's also deserves a shout-out. So that, uh, I have not heard of her. Yeah. So... Um, I'm delighted to be introduced. Does she have, um, like, a job? Um, or her job is connecting and exploring? So, and- yes. Um, she is a, I mean, she was a blogger for Huffington Post before that was even, like, before anybody even knew what that was. Um, she's a writer, and she's an activist. Um, That's a big job. Yes. <laughs> I want to just go back to Civil Eats for mm-hmm. one second. The best website ever. I'd love to have you talk about what Civil Eats is in case okay. people don't know. Um, it is a food online food publication that talks about food and sustainability, but also you know workers' rights, farmers' rights, um, artisanal products that are making a difference, things that are going on in the world, environmental issues that are politically important, um, you name it. 
it is the resource for all things food and sustainability and, and politics to a certain extent, the things that matter. I, I want to comment on that notion of mentorship. It's a topic that fascinates me. And I think you said something very important because I think most mentors think that they need to lead by example, sure, but by being so strong and everything is always positive. Right. And vulnerability doesn't come easily in that mentoring role. And yet vulnerability is probably the single thing that will make that mentee feel like it's all yes. going to be okay. This, the person who's helping me needed help at one time. Yes. And so both on the mentee side to be open to that and know it's not scary if the person you admire has vulnerabilities, but also um, for the mentor to know that it's an important part of that role. It's Absolutely. a super important part of that role. So that is the show for today. I want to thank my uh, engineer today, Vitor Hirsch. Thank you so much. Thank you all of you for listening. Uh, if people want to learn more about you and your work, Elizabeth, where can they find you? Or um, I mean, they can email me at the longest email address in the world, ermeltz, M-E-L-T-Z, at B and B-H-G. So that's B-A-N-D-B-H-G, Battalion Bastianich Hospitality Group. Okay, that's not... Dot com. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the longest? No, it's an ac- it's acronym, so I think it's, right. it's like the bit idly of... Um, yes, exactly. Of email addresses. You can find me on Instagram at FW Scout or at Speaking Broadly. And I welcome your questions, comments, reach out. And thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.